start a course which is to last four weeks, one has the idea that's going to go on forever. Nothing goes on forever. It's over before one actually has noticed it. So here we are, it's over. And what do we do now? In one way, the mind says, oh, that's nice, it's over. I Finally, I can do what I like again. I don't have to get up at a certain time. I don't have to eat what other people compare. I can fix it up myself. I can go and do whatever I like. Isn't it marvelous? So one does that for three or four days, and then it isn't marvelous anymore, because that too is impermanent. There's a little um, uh, corner shop not far from my um, monastery in Australia. It's, uh, well, it's on the other side of the Hawkesbury River. And uh, it's well known that after every course, it's uh, completely full of all the course participants buying ice cream and malted milk and chocolate uh, fudge and all the rest of it. So that's what we feel like doing. And then, of course, that isn't very satisfying either. It's uh, just as impermanent as the meditation course. So we think of other things. But eventually, the mind probably comes back to thinking, well, actually, it wasn't so bad sitting there and getting peaceful and concentrated and trying to figure out where the me is. Maybe I should continue doing that. And uh, when one has that uh, idea, then one may continue to practice. Now, most people whose meditation has got to the stage where there is calm, peacefulness, joy, and some insight will continue to practice. Remarkably enough, some people who don't get any peace, calm, and joy also continue to practice. They need a special admiration because obviously it's very difficult to continue to practice if one doesn't see any results. Our minds are geared for results. So we try to sometimes conjure up results because we want to see them, because we are so um, imbued with the idea there's got to be a result. And so we fantasize about it. Well, our minds are always fantasizing, so it's no wonder it does that too. It's not really necessary to have that fantasy about results. It's important that one knows why one is practicing. And practicing, as I've said many times and will continue to say for the next few years, as long as I'm saying anything, is practice does not mean sitting on a pillow. Practice means purifying oneself day in and day out so that the anger and the irritation and the negativity and also the um, rigidity, the uh, dislikes, the opinions, the viewpoints, with which one is beset and which make life so difficult are eventually discarded. They don't just go as daily practice over and over. Watching oneself to the point where one realizes this is unwholesome, I need to change that. Now that's practice. Meditation is part of it. Meditation, of course, has automatic purification and the more concentrated it becomes the more automatic the purification is and the stronger it is so if we decide that we are going to continue to practice and this is of course hopefully so we need to meditate and we need to have mindfulness introspection as long as we blame the outer triggers, she is, he is, they are, nothing is happening. It isn't working. It's a very simple criteria. 
as long as I know it's me doing this and I'm doing it out of either greed or hate, it's working. Because that we can change. But if it's he or she or them or because of, what can we do about it? Nothing. He, she, them, because of, is going to stay exactly that way. And to try to get away from it all, well, we'll probably have to live in a cave. And there we are confronted with dripping cave walls and uh, cold and heat and uh, little animals that crawl over our feet. And then it's them. (laughs) If we don't stop having any kind of reference to what them are doing, we can't practice. Now, the fantasy of practicing is very widespread. It's much wider spread than we'll practice. And I hope that I have made quite clear what real practice is. If I haven't, I'll have to try again some other time. Meditation is part of it. And if we want to continue that and have not have had a... Um, habit of it, we need to make a habit of it. It's a habit which becomes so natural that one can't actually feel at ease without it. It's just the same kind of habit that we have when we wash our body. Everybody does. And if we wouldn't have a chance to have a shower or a bath or a wash basin, we'd complain bitterly we would say these conditions here are terrible. No showers, no bathtubs, no wash basins. Our complaints would be considered justified. And they are. We do need to wash the body, but we also need to wash the mind. Don't ever forget that if we keep on washing this body, it's not going to help us at all, except it's not going to smell badly which is nice, it's all right. But if we don't wash the mind, we're never going to come get anywhere at all in this life. It's not going to be happiness and peacefulness. It's a constant up and down. It's a constant dichotomy of what I want and what I get. And it's a kind of attempt to manipulate and the attempt to make things happen the way we want them. That just isn't possible. So we might as well wash the mind every morning. And washing the mind means concentration, which is automatic purification. And if the concentration shouldn't happen, the sweeping method is also a very good purification method. Concentration on the breath or in the jhanas is equally good. Thought processes are not. Thought processes is what we have from morning to night. We might as well have a moment where the mind has that purification happening, which means nothing is coming up that's either negative nor positive. It just is. If we didn't have that purification for the mind, it's going to deteriorate. And it deteriorates at a rapid rate. You know, everything goes faster downhill than it does uphill. It's much more difficult to push oneself uphill. Downhill, it just rolls. And that's what minds do. And every time we get upset, worried or fearful, angry or disliking, we know we're rolling downhill. And if we don't stop that rolling, it might keep on rolling. So downhill is easy, uphill is difficult. The first order of the day, of every day, is sit down to meditate. Now some people are sleepy in the morning, rightly so, why not? Some people are sleepy in the evening. A cold shower, if the climate permits a few um, exercises to make the blood circulation 
go better. Uh, a few deep breaths with the in the open window. Anything like that can be helpful to get over the initial sleepiness. Some people need a cup of tea in the morning, right? <laughs> Some people need a cup of coffee. <laughs> Some people need a glass of water. One thing which is very helpful is a glass of water with lemon to get over sleepiness in the morning, if that is one's problem. Some people are far more sleepy in the evening. So what you need to do is find your own time, commensurate with your daily activities, so that you can have undisturbed time for meditation. If you live in a big city, the earliest morning is the only time, really, because then the dogs start barking, the telephones start ringing, the trucks start changing gears, and the neighbors turn on their radios, so or television sets. So early morning is a very good time, very early morning, because everything seems to be asleep. The birds haven't started singing yet, and very, most of the time it's also the wind is quiet. But it's entirely up to each person how they can arrange their lives. It's, um, if you think of it as part of daily habit, and if you think of it as part of daily purification, it may be easier than saying, I must meditate. The I must is usually not so useful. Also, it's not useful, and I say that every time, to think, I'm going to meditate for the rest of my life. doesn't work. Because everybody thinks they're going to live for another 50, 60, or even 100 years. And then it's very surprised when that doesn't happen. More than surprised. All we think is, I'm going to meditate tomorrow morning. That's all and go to bed with that thought in mind. If one goes to bed with that thought in mind, it's very likely that it is embedded strong enough to do it the next morning. If you have a room in your house where you do that, excellent. Otherwise, have a corner where you put your pillow, where you put a, a timer, where you have a vase with flowers, a Buddha statue, a picture, or nothing. Whatever you like. It doesn't matter. It's all symbols. Symbols for enlightenment. The kind of mind which no longer has the negativities. And then sit. And make up your mind for how long you're going to sit before you start. If this is a begin, if you're a beginner, maybe 30 minutes is all you can handle. Then work upward from 30 minutes up to an hour. If you are an experienced meditator, an hour. If you have more time, sit longer. Definitely have a timer. If you don't have a timer, the mind is going to play tricks. If you're very concentrated, it won't play tricks. But if you're not so concentrated, but thoughts are coming and going, and going here and there and everywhere, at that time, the mind is quite happy to play tricks because it's already playing tricks. It's thinking. And with all that thinking, it will also say, oh, I've sat here long enough. Must be at least an hour and a half. And then when you get up and look at the clock, you realize it's nothing like it. It's 15 minutes. And then, of course, that's the end of that day's meditation. So what you need to have is a little timer that rings. Just like here, we have a little bell ringing, have a timer that rings. And if you sit with the intention and nothing happens, at least the intention is making good karma. And that's putting sort of a barrier against that mind that's rolling downhill, the mind that gets angry and upset and fearful and um, doesn't like and has ideas of its own and doesn't want to give in and doesn't want to yield and doesn't want to and can't love, there's a barrier. The good karma makes a barrier for the mind rolling all the way downhill and hitting bottom with a bang. 
So the intention to meditate is good karma, even if nothing happens. Every time we put our mind on the meditation subject, we have an antidote for sloth and torpor. Every time we actually become concentrated to the point where there is no thought, we have an antidote for skeptical doubt. Until we get that antidote, we don't really know what we're doing. Because is it this or is it that? This teacher or that teacher? Is it the Buddha or should it be somebody else? Until the moment comes about when the mind stays still and doesn't think. It has nothing as its focus except that what is arising within as either delight, joy, peace. Any of those, the mind doesn't have to think. It just experiences. So with that moment, the skeptical doubt vanishes. Until then, the mind doesn't really know what it's, what we're all about, why one is really having to concentrate one day. But when it does, then it knows why. Until then, it doesn't have a clue. It thinks it's okay the way it's going. It's been going like that for the past 30, 20, 50 years. It's okay when it's still alive. But that moment, when that comes, all that disappears. So that's meditation, morning and evening or whenever there's time. It's very good to have a group once a week to get together with the group because it's a great support system. If you have a group, that's fine. If you don't, start one. Two people are a group. And if you have a friend who will meditate with you, that's very helpful. And not only that, but that friend may become a noble friend. Nothing is more important than having noble friends, particularly one noble friend, one that one can be totally honest to, and that's totally honest to one, knowing full well that that honesty isn't going to be abused. There's no way that a friend can be a noble friend if one can't be totally trustworthy, totally uh, reliable, with anything that the friend tells. If one has too much of one's own dislikes, that would be very difficult. Noble friends are those who've gone ahead on the path, those whose emotions and thought processes have been purified to some extent. And when the emotions and the thought processes are purified to some extent, then nobility of a noble friend arises. It's very important to have one. They don't have to meditate according to the Buddha's instructions. They don't have to have any affiliation. A noble person is noble under any name. It doesn't matter. That's a very important aspect of the spiritual path because if we don't have a noble friend, then we won't be knowing exactly where we are at and what we should be doing. Confusion sets in over and over again. If there is that kind of inner purification having taken place, then the Buddha's teaching also is much clearer because we know exactly what the barriers and blockages are. The barriers and blockages are our me illusion, our self deception, our fantasies, our rigidity of thinking of ourselves as somebody special. And then taking the special away and thinking of ourselves as somebody. And the more special we think we are, the more we want to impose our viewpoints on others. And in that line of thinking, we, have to, we undoubtedly make mistakes and the nobility of inner virtue disappears. So having a noble friend entails being a noble friend. Birds of a feather flock together. Tell me who your friends are and I tell you who you are. It is one of the most important aspects of one's life 
to have that understanding and discrimination in one's mind where one should actually be with one's friendship and relationship and one's giving oneself totally to other people. If one doesn't have that discrimination, if one thinks just because we there are words or there are certain things uh, done that that is noble, one is going to be in a very difficult position. One has to have enough wisdom to know a noble friend and to be one. Because we can't get them if we haven't got it. It's always a mutual undertaking. So that is a very great help also. The friendship, the togetherness, and a group, which can be two people. If there's anybody in your house who also meditates and you can sit together, that's also very helpful because we are, have been sitting here together and that's also a great help. I've already said that that's not enough. What we can do besides the meditation is the practice of mindfulness in our daily lives. But it has to be co-joined with clear comprehension, not with fantasizing. Clear comprehension. Clear comprehension is that part of our mind which knows and discriminates between the wholesome and the unwholesome. The mindfulness is that part of the mind which just knows and doesn't understand. Mindfulness does not understand, it just knows. Clear comprehension understands. And as I've told you several times already, wisdom comes from the understood experience. So first we have to experience, and then we have to understand it. And that is clear comprehension. So mindfulness, as you know, and as you have heard already several times, has different possibilities how we exercise it but it doesn't do the slightest bit of good if we don't know what it means so when we exercise it towards our own thought processes and that needs to be done in every moment it becomes a habit we watch the thought process and we realize it's wholesome or unwholesome if it's negative, it's always unwholesome. There are no justifications for negativities, none whatsoever. There are none that can ever have a truth in them. The negativities which arise in the mind arise out of hate and greed. Otherwise, there is nothing. So when we see that the thought process has become negative, unwholesome, we have to recognize it for what it is not because of a trigger. The triggers are always there. The world's full of triggers. Every single person we meet is a trigger for unwholesome thinking, if we allow that to happen. If we want to allow that, no problem. We can think negatively the rest of our lives from morning to night and dream negatively from night to morning. It's not difficult. It's much easier to go down than it's good to go up. And that's why it's not so easy to be in a meditation course. Because if you go down with your mind in a meditation course, it's terrible. It's awful. Nothing is working. The food's dreadful. The weather's impossible. The teacher doesn't know what she's talking about. The Buddha might have been right or not. Who knows? It just goes on and on and on. Negative more and more. Life is exactly the same way. If you put it in that context, all you're doing is trying to find some sense pleasure to do the, do to do the opposite. It's one's own negativity. Remember that. If you don't remember that, the whole course hasn't taken place for you. It's one's own negativity. It isn't what's happening outside of you. Because you can say everything that one can look at it negatively, we can look at it positively. So 
That in daily life is our mindfulness of the content of mind. The fourth foundation, Dhammanupasana, if you'd like to look it up in the Satipatthana Sutta. What is the mind containing? What's in it? What Dhamma is in it? Is it true or false? Is it giving or taking? Is it controlling or is it yielding? Controlling can never be positive. Yielding always is. The Buddha said we need to be like bamboo. Bamboo bends in the wind but never breaks. It bends all the way down to the ground but it doesn't break. Yielding, controlling is the worst thing that we can do because it usually amounts to trying to do it to others. So if we start looking at our mind content, we will use the four supreme efforts. Not to let an unwholesome thought continue, which has already started, is the most important one of those. But if we can see the unwholesome thought before it starts and already get out of the way, then we will find much more peacefulness. And the unwholesome thought always has a feeling that it sends ahead. Churning in the tummy, fogginess in the mind, heaviness in the shoulders, anything at all. The neck gets stiff, whatever. There's very often physical sensation, but very often there's also just an emotional feeling. And then the whole thing of that negative thinking starts. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And if anybody would like to practice according to mindfulness, nothing more important could be done with one's life bar this one. This one takes pride of place. Not allowing one's mind to go into those directions. And when it does, not to blame outside triggers. Just recognizing, I'm making up the world in which I live. Nobody is making up our world for us. We're all making up our own world. It's an interesting world that everybody lives in, isn't it? If you don't like the world we, we live in, well, make up a different one. Make one up that's full of love and compassion, that's full of understanding, full of yielding, full of giving, full of caring. Make one up like that instead of doing the other way. It's perfectly all right. Nobody's going to stop you. Nobody's going to stop you from making up a beautiful world within. That doesn't mean that the clear comprehension goes and one doesn't know anymore that Dukkha is, but one doesn't have to react to it. So the fourth foundation is the one that should go on all day long. There is hardly any time in one's daily life when this one isn't appropriate. The same applies to the second one, which is Vedana Nupasana, mindfulness of feeling. Now feeling, in this case, will have to be emotion. And as you know, when you get down, right down to brass tacks, you will find the four parts of mind, which are also mentioned in the Satipatthana Sutta as a meditation project. And I've mentioned them so many times, they must be coming out of your ears by now. Sense, contact, feeling, perception, reaction. The reaction is, most of the time, the emotional one. The feeling which arises at first is only pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. If you can stop right there, you've done a great step. It's not easy. When that unpleasant feeling arises, to stop from disliking and rejecting. And when that pleasant feeling arises, to stop oneself from craving and clinging. If one is used to unpleasant feelings within, one usually only notices those that are even a little more unpleasant. 
and noticing those that are a little more unpleasant, it's very difficult not to react. Second base of mindfulness, Vedana Nupasana, watching one's feelings. In this case, most likely, the emotional reaction. Watching it arise, also it has very often physical sensation occurring with it. Watching it arise and not spitting it out into the universe, but letting it subside again. The universe is filled with negativities. Don't add to them. We don't want to pollute our environment, do we? That's how we do it. It's very nice to uh, sort out our garbage into all those things which can be recycled. This garbage needs to be sorted out, what can be recycled. Recycle it and make it positive. That's far more important than glass bottles and plastic containers. Although they can be done too, naturally. But this takes pride of place. Sort out this garbage. And the more garbage there is, the more busy one will be. Everything that is an emotional reaction which does not contain metta karuna mudita upekka, loving kindness, compassion, joy with others and equanimity, every emotional reaction which is sort of these four are sort of like headings, all the rest you can forget, every single one of them. Now out of compassion comes the generosity, the giving, the being concerned with others and out of lovingness comes the relationship of being the togetherness joy with others also has that togetherness and equanimity is the pinnacle of our emotions evenness not trying to impose but to yield so it's a lifetime job but as soon as we start working on it you can see the results. There isn't so much of that unpleasant feeling within. There isn't so much of that churning within. There isn't so much of this feeling uncomfortable in one's own skin. Feeling uncomfortable in one's own skin is not physical. It's strictly emotional. And the more uncomfortable we feel, the more, of course, we would cut ourselves off off from the emotions because they make that feeling arise. So second base of mindfulness will probably be um, alternated with the fourth base of mindfulness. The first one, the attention to our bodily actions and our bodily movements is only appropriate in daily living when there's really nothing else happening. If we have to answer the telephone, we've got to know what we're going to say. It's not useful at that time to watch one's bodily movements. The person on the other end of the line is going to say, what's the matter? Why don't you answer? It's got to be appropriate. And uh, that attention to one's thought process, that is going to be the one that makes the words happen. We only have three doors. The thought, the speech, and the action. And thought is the most predominant. It happens all the time. So that's the one that needs to be watched most carefully. Speech is the next predominant one. It happens almost all the time. And action is the least predominant. We do less. Some people do nothing or practically nothing. But they all think and everybody talks. So those two are continuous. If we look upon ourselves as dependent arising over and over again, we will get, we will finally, it has to finally dawn on us that there's nobody there. It's got to. Nobody can go through their life thinking the right thought and not eventually feeling it. And this is the same with loving kindness. If we haven't got any, or very little, or not enough. Think it. Keep thinking it. Our thought processes are our own triggers. What we think, that's the world for us. Everybody knows how to think. There's nobody here who doesn't know how to think. 
think it. Keep on thinking it. Eventually something will happen. It's the wrong thinking that makes us unenlightened. It's the wrong thinking that gives us all the problems. It's the right thinking which gives us eventually the understanding of what the world really is. Now I've talked during the course here enough about all the ways and means of looking into this supposed self, the one that's supposedly there. All I can say to you, keep looking. If you keep looking, one day you'll find it's all been a big mistake. And when you do, you'll laugh. You'll laugh about yourself, how one could have been so foolish to see it this way when right next to it, immediately adjacent to it, you can see it totally different. It's not miles away. It's right next in the same thinking process. One thinking process says, this is me, and I want, and I'm going to have, and I'm going to make sure, and I'm going to tell them so that I can have it. And on the other side, at the same possible moment, the mind all of a sudden can see from continuous practice this all nonsense. There's nobody there that needs to tell that or think like that. It's nothing but depend arising. There is consciousness and there's mind and body. And because there's mind and body, there's consciousness. Because of consciousness, there is a contact of the senses. And as there is this contact of the senses, almost or quite simultaneously, feeling comes. And because of feeling, there's craving. Because of craving, there's clinging. Because of clinging, there's becoming. Because of becoming, there's birth. Because of birth, there's death. And the whole mass of suffering, every discomfort in mind, emotion, or body arises from that. Now, if we can see that, one day the mind says, now, what foolishness. And then, of course, one can see the foolishness of others with a great deal of compassion because it's all based on the same wrong thinking process. That's all. Now, the thinking produces feeling because thinking is one of the sense contexts. If we are in touch with our feeling, haven't been thinking so much that the feeling aspect of ourselves has been cut off. That too, of course, happens. But if that hasn't happened, then the thinking has produced the feeling of me because we think it all the time. In fact, we think it so much that it becomes an obsession. <laughs> it's not a choice. We're obsessed by it. We're obsessed by me, 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 me. Like small, small, tiny children who are only obsessed with their own comforts until they get a little bigger and can look out into the world. But if you've seen tiny babies, you'll see there's only me, me, me. Same here. Me, me. Of course, we couch it in better terms than a baby does. Baby just screams. We have much better language to try to hide that. But who succeeds? Nobody. And the more the me, the worse it is, the less it's hideable. So then, when we see that one day, that this is all nonsense, it's all a big mistake, then of course we laugh at ourselves. And then that whole nonsense that goes on in the world becomes very understandable. And it isn't the only world. Existence is dukkha wherever. But existence implies a me. True nature without me is bliss. And it isn't based on meditation. Meditation is the pathway. Without it, it doesn't work at all. But true bliss of true nature does not have nothing to do with having to meditate. True nature is true nature, whether it sits in meditation or sits under an apple tree or does whatever. It doesn't matter. So if we can keep on practicing, undoubtedly something will happen. Now, before I say some 
more worldly things. Maybe you have some last questions. This is your last opportunity to ask me this uh, at this time. So if you have some questions, this is the time to do that. Yes, Suzanne, what is it? <laughs> yes, it's on. <laughs> Was that all? <laughs> Do hear the rest. <laughs> okay. Yes. How much should one meditate? I, I assume one should meditate every day. How much every day? Well, um, usually a minimum of two hours will make it possible to retain the concentration one has gained in this meditation course. Usually, not always. Depending very much on one's daily activities, if one gets very much um, um, you know, distracted through the daily activities, even that isn't enough. If one wants to advance one's ability of concentration and insight, one certainly has to meditate far more than that. But if one can keep going what one has gained in this course, that's already very good. Excellent. Doesn't usually happen. So that's a minimum. And it's a realistic minimum because people don't, you know, just don't have any more time than that. At least that's what they think. You know. So, yes. You spoke the other day about um, having a, a review of what has been learned on this course. I did. In about three months. Huh? You said in about three months' time, one, one would need to review it and go over it again and sort of. Did I? In, in the interview with me. I don't recall the c connection. Can you make more <laughs> of a connection? We were speaking of the availability of the tapes in Australia yes. at the time, and you said that I would need to review what has been before I come back to the uh, uh, Listen to the tapes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I think I, I'm connecting now to what uh, that was all about. Um, the further we get away from the source, and your source is that at this time are the things that I have taught you. The further you get away from the source, the more it's diluted. It gets watered down, watered down. In the end, that mind says, mindfulness, what was that all about? Oh, yes, I'm supposed to watch when I'm walking. Or I'm supposed to watch what kind of a sensation I've got in the back of my neck. And that's about all that's left then. So, if one can use maybe the tapes of this course or some other source, that has that resource to remind one and to refurbish the understanding of what the Buddha's teaching is all about. That is extremely helpful. And I think I give it like a time limit of three months that by that time the whole thing is already, you know, de deteriorating. Now, some people have better memories than others, obviously, and some are more committed than others. When the more one thinks one knows, the less it's going to happen. The one who thinks he knows, or he or she knows, is the one who's going to use their own viewpoints and opinions. So if one tries to remember that's where it's at, and sees it at totally impersonal, see, this is another mistake which is very important, maybe I should mention. If one sees a teaching as totally impersonal, nothing but, showing the way for the deluded mind to become less and less deluded. It's got no personal um, connotation about it, neither the teaching nor the reception of it. The easier it is to understand. If one always thinks this is personal, nothing is happening. So yes, after three months, one probably needs a reminder. So one has to re refurbish the mind with, what is this all about? This is about concentration real concentration where the mind doesn't think but only experiences 
which means purification, which means that we actually come in contact with higher states of consciousness, levels which show us quite clearly that that what we're thinking all day long and experiencing all day long is just kindergarten. Everything else goes beyond that. And then inside, where we can eventually see only phenomena, only depend arising. And all these things that I have mentioned, how to do that, those are the things that I probably meant to uh, arouse in the mind. That's something like what we were talking about. I don't remember a thing. <laughs> yes. Could you explain one more time about the difference of being self-satisfied and content? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Contentment means that one is absolutely at ease with who one is, where. that one tries all the time to use this life as an adult education class. There's a contentment arising from that because one knows that one is using whatever comes in here, wholesome or unwholesome, in order to grow. Self-satisfied means I know and I'm all right the way I am. That's self-satisfaction. I know anyway. Nobody needs to tell me, and whatever I'm doing is fine. Then there's no growth process. The growth process is not a desire and a craving. It's mindful attention and clear comprehension. And the contentment arises out of that. Okay, sir. Okay. What else? Well, I won't be back for a year, so if you have anything that you want to ask, you better do so now. Anything at all? Yes? Could you please say a little bit about the difference between thought, discursive thought process and inquiring into the Dharma within meditation? Sometimes I wonder if my examination of impermanence or this for me isn't becoming just a wrap in my mind. It can easily. It can very easily. If the the best way to inquire into the Dhammas is after the mind has become quiet and peaceful. And quiet and peaceful to the extent where there's only the experience of either the joy or the peacefulness and not any thinking. And after that, it's the very best time to inquire into the impermanence of even the joy and the peace, to inquire into the impermanence of the breath. The breath impermanence is a very impactful inquiry because we can't live without the breath. We're dead without it. So if we watch that impermanence of the breath and see it for what it is, coming in, going out, the absolute essential foundation to be alive and yet totally unreliable, then we get an insight into this completely transcendental being that we consider so solid, which is its solidity is totally unreliable and everything is constantly changing. So the breath is a very good inquiry into impermanence. And after the mind has been quiet and peaceful, it is um, the best time because the mind isn't churned up about likes and dislikes and about worldly matters. The um, impermanence of thought processes is also important, but it doesn't give that strength of understanding because we can live without thought perfectly okay, especially when we get when we get more and more concentrated. We don't we don't have to have thoughts. And we can be alive very nicely without them. But we cannot be alive without the breath. So it's um it's a, a more profound understanding of this being that is being pushed around by all these phenomena 
and uh, is totally dependent upon them. So it is very good to first do concentration and then do insight. Okay? Anything else? Yes? Okay. Um, it's very simple. Um, my mailing address and my most um, um, permanent address is in Germany, and uh, I'll put that on the table there. My address, because if I now say it, I mean I have to spell it because it's German and it's complicated. But wherever I am. Mail always reaches me there. Gudrun either sends it to me or we talk on the phone, even if I'm away. But from now until... I've forgotten. Uh, no, more than that, actually. From now until March, I'm not going away for any length of time. I'm going to be away on a trip in Europe and go to other cities in, in Germany but uh, I'm not going to be away for a long time. So that address is always right. So I'll put it on the table, okay? And uh, if you have questions about your meditation and you cannot find anyone to answer them, which in the case of the jhanas might be the case, it may not be, I don't know. I don't know what other people say and do. I'm only going by hearsay and I really don't know. But if you can't find anybody to help you with uh, a meditative problem, you're welcome to write. I answer every letter I get, unless it's abusive. I don't answer those. I do get them also sometimes, which is perfectly all right. The Buddha got that sort of thing too, uh, by word of mouth. And uh, so if you have genuine question, uh, you're very welcome to write. I always answer. Sometimes it takes a little longer than what you think it should have taken. And that is because it needs to be forwarded. That's all. Um, so it takes an extra seven or eight days because it needs to be forwarded. But I have never yet failed to answer a letter which had a genuine content. Uh, if I didn't answer it and it did have genuine content, I didn't get it. So you'll have to write again. But your, any question you have, I'm very happy to answer it. It is um, my reason for teaching so that the uh, final ending of Dukkha can be experienced. It's my reason for um, coming here, and it's my reason for answering letters. So, although I could, you know, go to the beach, I suppose, but <laughs> it doesn't really attract me that much. I've been at the beach many times in my life. I think it's not necessary anymore. So, yes, I'll put that on that table. Right away when we finish, I'll do that. Anything else that I can answer? Okay, I'll say a few mundane matters, and then we'll have our last loving-kindness meditation. Please put the attention on the breath for a few moments. Imagine you have a beautiful white lotus flower growing in your heart which opens all its petals until it's fully open. The lotus flower is a symbol for purity. See that beautiful flower growing in your heart. Then there's a golden stream of light which comes out of the center of that beautiful flower in your heart and it fills you from head to toe with light and warmth, brilliance, 
with joy. And it surrounds you, that golden stream of light, with love and peace, keeping you safe and secure, at ease. Now let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to all the people that are around here. First in this room, then in any of the buildings here in this seminary. Let that golden stream of light with the warmth from your heart and the joy reach out to all of them and surround them with it giving them a feeling of being loved. Now think of those people whom you're going to meet very shortly, either on your travels or at home. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to these people with light, warmth, brilliance, joy, and embrace them with it, giving them your love. Think of anyone towards whom you've had negative thoughts, negative feelings. Anyone at all, whether you've voiced them or not. And let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to that person's heart with warmth and joy and love. Now think of your friends whom you might meet again shortly. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart, full of warmth and light and joy, reach out to them, filling them from head to toe and surrounding them with love and peace. Setting a mode for your relationship with them.
think of yourself as one who can love and give. So let that golden stream of light from the center of your heart flow and enlarge, reach out to people everywhere, bringing them love and joy and peacefulness. Think of people you've met in your life. Think of those you've only seen. Think of your neighbors. Think of the people in the town you live in. And those in your hometown. Let them all be part of your lovingness. Now let that golden stream of light from the center of your heart, full of love and peace and joy, just flow out from your heart, anywhere and everywhere, as far as it will go, so that it becomes part of the universe. And then put yourself into the whole totality of the universe, being part of it, being in it, experiencing the love and the peace and the joy that you yourself have generated there. Now feel that golden stream of light within you as warmth, light, joy and love. And feel it surrounding you as peacefulness. gives a feeling of ease and security.
And now let the golden stream of light go back inside the lotus flower, which closes its petals. And then anchor this lotus flower, this beautiful, pure flower, in your heart, so that it may become one with it. We share the merits of this meditation retreat with all our teachers as our gift to them in gratitude. We share with our parents who gave us life as our gift to them in gratitude. We share with our loved ones, our friends and our enemies. All of them have helped us to be here. We share the merits of this meditation retreat with the Immaculate Heart of Mary Seminary who have housed us and given the facilities to us. We share the merits we have made with those who have organized this course and have helped Tony, Anya, Barbara, Bob and Dixie all have been instrumental in getting this course running and also keeping it running. Have given time and energy and love. We share the merits with each other. We share the merits with all the devas who are present. They have also helped us and may they please continue to help us. We share the merits with all beings who may be receptive to this. May these merits that we have made be of benefit to many beings. I now officially close this meditation retreat. Noble silence is lifted. May you all be very happy.